Book Two, Chapter Ten, of Robert Falconer, by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald, Chapter Ten, A Father and a Daughter. The presence at the street door of which Ericson's over-acute sense had been aware on a past evening was that of Mr. Lindsay, walking home with bowed back and bowed head from the college library, where he was privileged to sit after hours as long as he pleased over books too big to be comfortably carried home to his cottage. He had called to inquire after Ericson, whose acquaintance he had made in the library, and cultivated, until almost any Friday evening Ericson was to be found seated by Mr. Lindsay's parlour fire. As he entered the room that same evening, a young girl raised herself from a low seat by the fire to meet him. There was a faint, rosy flush on her cheek, and she held a volume in her hand as she approached her father. They did not kiss. Kisses were not a legal tender in Scotland then. Possibly there had been a depreciation in the value of them since they were. "'I've been to ask after Mr. Ericson,' said Mr. Lindsay. "'And how is he?' asked the girl." very poorly indeed answered her father i am sorry you'll miss him papa yes my dear tell jenny to bring my lamp won't you have your tea first papa oh yes if it's ready the kettle has been boiling for a long time but i wouldn't make the tea till you came in mr lindsay was an hour later than usual but mysie was quite unaware of that she had been absorbed in her book, too much absorbed even to ring for better light than the fire afforded. When her father went to put off his long bifurcated greatcoat, she returned to her seat by the fire and forgot to make the tea. It was a warm, snug room, full of dark, old-fashioned spider-legged furniture, low-pitched with a bay window, open like an ear to the cries of the German Ocean at night, and like an eye during the day to look out upon its wide expanse this ear or eye was now curtained with dark crimson and the room in the firelight with the young girl for a soul to it affected one like an ancient book in which he reads his own latest thought mysie was nothing over the middle height delicately fashioned at once slender and round with extremities neat as buds her complexion was fair and her face pale except when a flush like that of a white rose overspread it her cheek was lovelily curved, and her face rather short, but at first one could see nothing for her eyes. They were the largest eyes, and their motion reminded one of those of Sordello in the Purgatorio. Et nel d'Egle, occhi, onesta et tarda. They seemed too large to move otherwise than with a slow turning like that of the heavens. At first they looked black, but if one ventured inquiry, which was as dangerous as to gaze from the battlements of Elsinore, he found them a not very dark brown. In her face, however, especially when flushed, they had all the effect of what Milton describes as Quel sereno fulgor de amabil Nero. A wise observer would have been a little troubled in regarding her mouth. The sadness of a morbid sensibility hovered about it, the sign of an imagination wrought upon from the centre of self her lips were neither thin nor compressed they closed lightly and were richly curved but there was a mobility almost tremulous about the upper lip that gave 
sign of the possibility of such an oscillation of feeling as might cause the whole fabric of her nature to rock dangerously the moment her father re-entered she started from her stool on the rug and proceeded to make the tea her father took no notice of her neglect but drew a chair to the table helped himself to a piece of oat-cake hastily loaded it with as much butter as it could well carry and while eating it forgot it and everything else in the absorption of a volume he had brought in with him from his study in which he was tracing out some genealogical thread of which he fancied he had got a hold mysie was very active now and lost the expression of far-offness which had hitherto characterized her countenance till having poured out the tea she too plunged at once into her novel and like her father forgot everything and everybody near her mr lindsay was a mild gentle man whose face and hair seemed to have grown grey together he was very tall and stooped much he had a mouth of much sensibility and clear blue eyes whose light was rarely shed upon any one within reach except his daughter they were so constantly bent downwards either on the road as he walked or on his book as he sat he had been educated for the church but had never risen above the position of a parish schoolmaster he had little or no impulse to utterance was shy genial and save in reading indolent ten years before this point of my history he had been taken up by an active lawyer in edinburgh from information accidentally supplied by mr lindsay himself as the next heir to a property to which claim was laid by the head of a county family of wealth probabilities were altogether in his favour when he gave up the contest upon the offer of a comfortable annuity from the disputant to leave his schooling and his possible estate together and sit down comfortably by his own fireside with the means of buying books and within reach of a good old library that of king's college by preference was to him the sum of all that was desirable the income offered him was such that he had no fear of laying aside enough for his only child mysie but both were so ill-fitted for saving he from looking into the past she from looking into what shall i call it i can only think of negatives what was neither past present nor future neither material nor eternal neither imaginative in any true sense nor actual in any sense that up to the present hour there was nothing in the bank and only the money for impending needs in the house he could not be called a man of learning he was only a great bookworm for his reading lay all in the nebulous regions of history old family records wherever he could lay hold upon them were his favourite dishes old musty books that looked as if they knew something everybody else had forgotten made his eyes gleam and his white taper-fingered hand tremble with eagerness with such a book in his grasp he saw something ever beckoning him on a dimly precious discovery a wonderful fact just the shape of some missing fragment in the mosaic of one of his pictures of the past to tell the truth however his discoveries seldom rounded themselves into pictures though many fragments of the minutely dissected map would find their places whereupon he rejoined like a mild giant refreshed with soda-water but i have already said more about him than his place justifies therefore although i could gladly linger over the portrait i will leave it he had taught his daughter next to nothing being his child he had the vague feeling that she inherited his wisdom and that what he knew she knew so she sat reading novels generally trashy ones while he knew no more of what was passing in her mind than of what the admirable crichton might at the moment be disputing with the angels 
I would not have my reader suppose that Mysie's mind was corrupted. It was so simple and childlike, leaning to what was pure and looking up to what was noble, that anything directly bad in the book she happened, for it was all haphazard to read, glided over her as a black cloud may glide over a landscape, leaving it sunny as before. I cannot therefore say, however, that she was nothing the worse. If the darkening of the sun keep the fruits of the earth from growing, the earth is surely the worse, though it be blackened by no deposit of smoke. And where good things do not grow, the wild, and possibly noxious, will grow more freely. There may be no harm in the yellow tansy, there is much beauty in the red poppy, but they are not good for food. The result in Mysie's case would be this, not that she would call evil good and good evil, but that she would take the beautiful for the true, and the outer shows of goodness for goodness itself. Not the worst result, but bad enough, and involving an awful amount of suffering, and possibly of defilement. He who thinks to climb the hill of happiness thus will find himself floundering in the blackest bog that lies at the foot of its precipices. I say he, not she, advisedly. All will acknowledge it of the woman. It is as true of the man, though he may get out easier. Will he? I say, checking myself. I doubt it much. In the world's eye, yes, but in God's, let the question remain unanswered. When he had eaten his toast and drunk his tea, apparently without any enjoyment, Mr. Lindsay rose with his book in his hand and withdrew to his study. He had not long left the room when Mysie was startled by a loud knock at the back door, which opened on a lane leading along the top of a hill. But she had almost forgotten it again when the door of the room opened, and a gentleman entered without any announcement, for Jenny had never heard of the custom. When she saw him, Mysie started from her seat and stood in visible embarrassment. The color went and came on her lovely face, and her eyelids grew very heavy. She had never seen the visitor before. Whether he had never seen her before, I cannot certainly say. She felt herself trembling in his presence, while he advanced with perfect composure. He was a man no longer young, but in the full strength and show of manhood, the Baron of Rothie. Since the time of my first description of him, he had grown a moustache, which improved his countenance greatly by concealing his upper lip with its tusky curves. On a girl like Mysie, with an imagination so cultivated, and with no opportunity of comparing its fancies with reality, such a man would make an instant impression. I beg your pardon, Miss Lindsay, I presume, for intruding upon you so abruptly. I expected to see your father, not one of the graces. She blushed all the color of her blood now. The baron was quite enough like the hero of whom she had just been reading to admit of her imagination jumbling the two. Her book fell. He lifted it and laid it on the table. She could not speak even to thank him. Poor Mysie was scarcely more than sixteen. "'May I wait here till your father is informed of my visit?' he asked. Her only answer was to drop again upon her low stool. Now Jenny had left it to Mysie to acquaint her father with the fact of the baron's presence, but before she had time to think of the necessity of doing something, he had managed to draw her into conversation. He was as great a hypocrite as ever walked the earth, although he flattered himself that he was not, because he never pretended to cultivate that which he despised, namely religion. But he was a hypocrite nevertheless, for the falser he knew himself, 
the more honour he judged it to persuade women of his truth. It is unnecessary to record the slight, graceful, marrowless talk into which he drew Mysie, and by which he both bewildered and bewitched her. But at length she rose, admonished by her inborn divinity, to seek her father. As she passed him, the baron took her hand and kissed it. She might well tremble. Even such contact was terrible. Why? Because there was no love in it. When the sense of beauty which God had given him that he might worship awoke in Lord Rothie, he did not worship, but devoured, and he might, as he thought, possess. The poison of asps was under those lips. His kiss was as a kiss from the grave's mouth, for his throat was an open sepulchre. This was all in the past, reader. Baron Rothie was a foam flake of the court of the Prince Regent. There are no such men nowadays. It is a shame to speak of such, and therefore they are not. Decency has gone so far to abolish virtue. Would to God that a writer could be decent and honest. St. Paul counted it a shame to speak of some things, and yet he did speak of them, because those to whom he spoke did them. Lord Rothie had, in five minutes, so deeply interested Mr. Lindsay in a question of genealogy that he begged his lordship to call again in a few days, when he hoped to have some result of research to communicate. One of the antiquarian's weaknesses, cause and result both of his favourite pursuits, was an excessive reverence for rank. Had its claims been founded on mediated revelation, he could not have honoured it more. Hence, when he communicated to his daughter the name of their visitor, it was, with bated breath and whispering humbleness, which deepened greatly the impression made upon her by the presence and conversation of the baron. Mysie was in danger. Shargar was late that evening, for he had a job that detained him. As he handed over his money to Robert, he said, I saw Black Geordie the night again, standing at the back door, and Jock Mitchell upon Red Rory hauling him. What's Jock Mitchell? asked Robert. My brother Sandy's ill-fard groom, answered Shargar. Whatever mischief Sandy's up till, Jock comes in in the head or tail of it. I wonder what he's up till new. Faith, nay good. But I, I like war to meet Sandy by himself upon the reeked devil of his. Man, it's awful when Black Geordie turns the white of his eye in the white of his teeth upon ye. It's all the white there is about him. Was not your brother in the army, Shargar? Ow, deed I. They tell me he was at Waterloo. He's a cornell or something like that. What tellt ye all that? My mother, Wiles, answered Shargar. End. Chapter 10